1: And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 46 in our series for 2019, and today's date is Friday, December 13th. First, I'll be talking to Matt Pohl, an experienced business leader with a passion for innovation. He's recently founded NEOS, or neos.co.uk, which is an insured tech business that is focused on delivering smart home protection products and services. Prior to this, he spent 15 years in the insurance industry, working in the UK and US with AXA and RSA. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Gruen about how to restore trust. But now, let's talk to Matt Pohl. Matt Pohl, tell us about NEOS. Yes, with NEOS, we're quite different from traditional insurers. You come to us
0: um, and you buy an insurance policy like you would with any other insurer. But instead of just getting a piece of paper with your policy details on it, we also give our customers smart home technology to protect against burglary, fire and water leaks. That's all connected up through the app. And then most importantly, if, if... an issue is detected in the home, the customer can contact us through the app or via the phone, and we can send somebody out there to help, and uh, hopefully you put the situation right before it gets too much of a bigger issue, and obviously, you know, we obviously can't protect everything, um, so you've still got good old insurance should the actual worst ever happen.
1: So what sort of technology are you adding? What sort of technology are you giving the customer?
0: So smart cameras, motion sensors, door window sensors, leak detectors, and, you know, fire detectors. We've got a variety of different devices that we use. And, uh, yeah, depending on which package you choose with us, you get a selection of those accordingly.
1: Uh, when when did you start up this company?
0: So we started up sort of just about two and a half years ago, so towards the end of T6. 26- 2016 we started in earnest um, we had our first sort of full trading year last year in 2018 so we spent 2017 sort of building out the proposition testing it developing it and then we started trading in earnest as i said last year at the start of 2018
1: what gave you the idea to go down this direction in terms of uh, using it as an insurance company to setting up an insurance company. So, my, it off of technology. Yeah. So, my background has
0: been in insurance. So, I've spent probably too long, actually, about twenty years in insurance. And my last role before I set up Neos, I used to run one of the sort of largest direct brand insurers in the UK, a company called More Than, which is owned by Royal and Sun Alliance. And I just got fed up with, I guess, the feedback from customers. You know, customers would always come to us and say, "You know what? I pay you all this." money every year for my insurance. I'm a great customer. I have a claim. I get nothing in return. And then at the end of the year, what do you go and do? You put my price up. Um, We've all seen the sort of dual pricing issues that have just come to light um, in the UK. So I thought customers deserved more. And actually, I'd seen how smart technology can add value in terms of engagement to customers and helping prevent claims. So Smart home was the natural choice. And it's really a win win. You know, I hate using that terminology, but, you know, the customer wins because they're able to protect the home better. They get something of value, even if they don't make a claim. You know, they've got the smart tech so they can check in on their home whenever they want. And obviously, we win as well because if we can. You know catch incidents early before they become really big issues, then obviously we can hopefully save on the claims payouts that we make to customers
1: but but it would be a certain uh, demographic of customers you'd be going for wouldn't you i mean you couldn't this couldn't be applying for all homeowners, surely
0: yeah, pretty much it can. Some of the leak sensors that we knew, the clip on ones that we put around the pipe don 't work in flats, but we've got different solutions or apartments um. So, yeah, we're pretty much for everyone. Um, we do have a certain demographic that, you know, is more attracted to our policy. But actually, we've got quite a wide range across the piece of uh, customers. So as long as you've got a, a house or apartment and you have uh, home insurance, then you can get one of our policies. One of the main benefits is is that you might think, given that we give away all these um, devices to customers, that we're really expensive compared to a traditional insurance policy well in fact we're not we're actually very competitive alongside traditional insurance policies so in essence you know the customers get in the the technology for free
1: so you're basically you're offering everything that they would get with any other insurance company but with technology
0: including yeah plus the added benefit of the technology yeah and You know, so it's quite a compelling offer for the customer at a very similar price as you would just pay for, you know, your traditional insurance policy.
1: So how's the take-up been from customers
0: towards this? Yeah, really good. Um, We launched, as I said, the start of 2018, and we've scaled quite rapidly, bringing customers on board. This year, we'll at least double the sales that we did last year. So, you know, we're building quite nicely. We've also then, we've got a B2B arm to our business so a lot of the big insurers you know the incumbents or saw what we were doing and have come to us and said hey we really like what you're doing could you do it for us and we've actually decided that you know that that makes sense to help our distribution so we've partnered with a lot of big insurers um, that are utilizing our technology so um, Aviva is one in the UK they're the largest insurer in the UK uh, we've just partnered with one of the largest insurers in the Netherlands, and then just just literally uh, two weeks ago, we just announced a big partnership with one of the largest insurers in the U.S., American Family. Yeah, they're using our technology to offer this type of service to their customers as well. So we're quite excited about that side of the business as well.
1: Well, that's that's very interesting. I mean, how does that work uh, when you when you say partnership? Do you license them to use your technology?
0: Yeah, in essence, yeah. We we basically white-label our technology, you know, so we provide the service, the technology, and the service that wraps around it in the partner's brand. It's branded Aviva, it's branded AMWB in Holland, it's branded American Family in the US.
1: And it also means you have the capacity to expand this overseas and you're already partnering with companies in outside of the UK.
0: Yeah, exactly, and that's that's the big sense. So we, when we looked hard at the market, we thought the easiest way to increase our distribution internationally was through partnerships rather than setting up a, you know, and trying to market and sell insurance in multiple different territories, which is tough for a small startup like us, because we've got, you know, limited resource and also the regulation environment is very tough as in insurance, as you know, so partnerships was the, the obvious choice. We're just really pleased that, you know, huge brands, like Aviva, like ANWB, which is basically the Dutch AA, and, you know, American family have chosen to partner with us. Would there be regulatory issues? Um, it, it varies from territory to territory, actually. So we, we certainly haven't had any regulatory issues in the UK, and it's the same in the Netherlands, actually. In fact, the regulators see it as quite a positive step because we're giving customers more for their money. The FCA in the UK is very particularly focused on driving customer value, and we certainly tick that box, you know, much more than a traditional insurer. In the US, it's slightly different because each state has its own regulator, and some some states look at it as an incentive to customers, where it, it's absolutely not. But there's regulation <laughs> on a state basis, so we're working very closely with American Family to make sure that the proposition you know, meets all the regulatory requirements in all the different states in the US.
1: So uh, are you thinking of adding any more technology?
0: Yes, we are. uh, In fact, we've got a new sensor set coming out soon. Um, We're also going to be adding a smart doorbell and an outdoor camera to our collection because, you know, we tend to do a lot of stuff. All our products that we offer is based on customer feedback, what they want. And outdoor cameras and smart doorbells have feet very highly in our requests from customers, so we're going to be adding those to our stable this year.
1: You'd be offering the complete suite of technologies so that that's pretty good
0: yeah exactly we We will only focus though we are only really focused on technology that aligns with you know preventing you know insurance peril so but anything to do with burglary. You know, security, yep, that's a tick for us. Anything to do with preventing fires, um, yep, that's a tick for us. Anything to do with preventing water leaks, yep, another big tick for us. We're not We're not so focused on other areas of smart home like, you know, I don't, I don't know, smart toasters or, you know, fridges. That's not for us. We're very much on the, you know, prevention side of stuff, protecting right. people's homes.
1: Okay, and uh, do you see the company expanding any further?
0: Yeah, we do. We've got plans to expand. We're just opening up um, an office in the U.S., so we're planning to expand further into the U.S. And, um, yeah, we're looking to extend our range, again, further internationally in Europe. So, you know, certainly Germany and France and the Nordics are, are interesting markets for us in
1: Europe as well, and then Canada
0: is we're in talks with a company in Canada where we'll hopefully be able to partner with them as well.
1: Well, Matt, that sounds fascinating. And uh, uh, hoping one day you might sit up shop in Australia.
0: Well, yeah, funny you should say that. We have had some interest in
1: Australia
0: and uh, it's certainly a market that um, if we can find the right partner, we'd look at, you know, because there's a lot of similarities, um, apart from the weather, obviously, (laughs) uh, but there's a lot of similarities in the market uh, to the UK, and obviously, you know, being an English-speaking language country, it makes things a lot easier for us.
1: Well, Matt, thank you very much for your time and uh, wishing NEOS all the best. Thank you. a uh, pleasure. And now let's talk to economist Nicholas Grian. Uh Nicholas, we spoke about the competition delusion last time. Can you recap on what that actually is?
2: So I... I, I, I... Written this uh, essay, which will be appearing in the uh, Griffith Review in february, and it's about I, I call it the competition delusion and the competition delusion is that competition is always a good thing uh, and what i'm focusing on uh, there's a there's a fairly standard debate about whether it's say a good thing in social work and hospitals and schools and so on, but what I'm focusing on is the way in which there are there are rules of the game and what we when we say we want more competition we need to also ask the question what are the terms of that competition and we spoke about uh auditing and things like that and if you want auditors to compete and tell you the truth but they're being appointed by the firms they're auditing then that is a uh that, then that is a problem (laughs) Uh, because the, because auditing is providing public goods effectively, which is goods to demonstrate the veracity of what people say in their accounts. And, and so as we, uh, as, as economists and policymakers have fallen in love with competition, uh, we love the idea of competition, but we don't ask ourselves that very special question, which is what are the terms of that competition? And, uh, uh, that uh, one example of that, which I published a blog post on recently, was that we've done this in universities. We've said that uh, everybody needs to compete, uh, that universities should compete with each other and academics should all compete, but we don't pay too much attention to what they're competing for and things are not looking good in that regard.
1: You use an intriguing expression, making a beeline for the God's eye view. Can you elaborate on that for a little?
2: So... So, what we did with universities are kind of time honored institutions. I don't want to paint a particularly rose colored view of what they did, but the hardest thing that a university does is it, as far as research is concerned, is it decides on intellectual merit. It decides this is meritorious, this is not meritorious. Now, the way they did that. Was a a rather kind of arcane, I wouldn't call it an efficient way, uh, but it was it, it reaches into the notion of professionalism and senior academics typically would judge the quality of more junior academics' work. Uh, there was quite a, uh, academics had uh, academics could aspire to tenure, which is a secure job, and they would, and this was this would encourage them to take long-term risks. Uh, maybe maybe they might not be able to publish anything for three or four years while they worked on something and so on. Now, I don't want to suggest that that's ideal in any way. Uh, what I argued was that it was inefficient but effective. And what we've now got is we made a beeline for the God's eye view. What's the God's eye view? Well, the God's eye view is, oh, well, the system has to decide on academic merit. And this method doesn't enable the system to do that. This method doesn't enable you to work out whether um, an academic in Sydney University is better than an academic in Melbourne University or whether Sydney University is better than Melbourne University. So a God's eye view will do that. It's just that we aren't God. So the God's eye view that we make a beeline to uh, might not be a very good one. And the God's eye view we went for is we said, well, uh, we're only interested in outputs here or out, uh, and so an output from a university, we don't care how much they spend on something and we want outputs and those outputs are learned journal articles effectively. And so the whole system has pursued competition for learned journal articles and if that sounds like an accident waiting to happen to you, well, it does to me anyway.
1: Well, there's a deep irony here. What economists are thinking that this is a market-based approach.
2: So that's the great irony, which is that we think of what we've done as more market oriented. And of course, it looks much more like a market. There's no doubt about that. But the essence of a market, the beauty of a market, the thing that the the secret source of a market is that nobody decides what's good and what's bad. That is decided within the system by Different people's valuations of different things. And we've lost that diversity in universities because, in our making our beeline for the God's eye view, we decided already, in effect, maybe we're not gods, we'll just pretend to be gods, and we'll say that these citation metrics, these metrics about how many journals people can, uh, how many journal articles people can rack up, these are our God's eye view of intellectual merit that uh, the whole system will revolve around. That's the place that we've got ourselves to. And that's not much of a market. And that's not much of a market. That is, in fact, in the in the boo expression that we're used to, that's called picking winners. So, so we've worked ourselves into a situation in which uh, the policymakers have, con- have congratulated themselves on this market that they've set up and how they're administering quality research and all the rest of it, but in fact, uh, there's a deep irony at the bottom of the list because they've decided to pick winners. In fact, they are, they're not the ones who pick the winners. They just decide on a single uh, a single metric, a single way, uh, maybe one or two ways to pick winners when a market would have lots of different uh, lots of different actors making lots of different bets about what was of value to them.
1: Right. Okay. Okay. So uh, what's the replication crisis and why is it associated with what you're talking about?
2: So one of the things we've we're discovering is that a lot of research, um, uh, that, that there's an imperative. If you If you set up incredibly powerful imperatives to publish, guess what happens? People publish and there are shortcuts to publication. If you're doing a study, let's say you're looking for some relationship, uh, some relationship, say, between drugs that have been taken and autism, or I just made that one up, uh, then you can can data mine, you can get a huge amount of data and you can look for, let's say you get all the data, you, you get a bunch of people who are diagnosed autistic, and then you get... Uh, uh, their pharmaceutical prescriptions, of the, the uh, population might be 20,000 people and their pharmaceutical prescriptions over the last 10 years, the chances are you'll be able to find something. And because you did this search for hundreds of different possibilities, those uh, random chances will turn up and you'll be able to show that they're highly unlikely, it would be highly unlikely for these things to be random, so that they, you might show that this is 99% likely not to be random. But remember, you've searched 400 of these relationships, and if you search for 500 possible relationships, five you will find five of them that can be shown to the 99 uh, can be shown to be 99% not likely to be random. So that's five articles for you right there. And it's all completely bogus. So, I mean, that's a simplified example of how we've now turned, uh, the risk is that we turn universities into factories for promoting bogus research. Now, it's not nearly as bad as that, but it's much worse than you think uh, because uh, it's turning out to be very uh, it's turning out that a very large amount of university research in some of the hardest sciences like pharmaceuticals is either uh, is is not reproducible Uh, there's a whole lot of other research that isn't that is reproducible but isn't particularly useful so but but it's worth a publication so those are some of the those are just some of the costs of becoming obsessed with uh, public metrics and stuff like that. I might finally add I'm not arguing that these problems are new. To some extent, they were a problem in the system. The evidence suggests that we've made them somewhat worse. But imagine if when we did out when we reformed universities, we'd actually been focusing on these problems rather than uh, abstract ideas about, how hey, can't we make this look more like a market? And
1: indeed, your views apply to how we view competition generally. And, and Nicholas Grin, that is fascinating stuff. And thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much. So what's happening in the news? Well, the unexpected drop in China's exports in November shows one reason why the nation wants to agree on a phase one trade deal. US tariffs are hurting China's exports at a time when global demand is already weak. Total exports in November dropped 1.1% from a year ago, and to the US they were down 23%, the Customs Administration said Sunday. That was the worst result for exports to the US since February, and the 12th straight monthly decline. Overall shipments had been expected to rise 0.8%, as retailers and companies stock up before the Christmas shopping season. About 18 months of tit-for-tat tariffs have damaged both economies, with Chinese companies and American farmers selling less to the other side. When the two sides agreed to work on a phase one trade deal in October, there was hope that it would lead to a quick resolution of at least some of the underlying issues. However, negotiations have stretched out, and even if some of the tariffs are removed, both sides will be economically worse off than they would have been without the conflict. The Wall Street Journal reported, that the United States and China were planning to delay a new round of tariffs set to kick in on December 15th. White House economic advisor Larry Kudlow, however, said no decision had been made yet. And Australia is expected to post the worst profit growth in Asia next year, as a weak domestic economy stokes consumer caution and the banking sector deals with a litany of scandals. Earnings for the S&P ASX 200 index are seen rising 4.2%, less than half the increase that MSCI's broadest measure for Asian stocks is expected to achieve, according to data compiled by Bloomberg. Australia's benchmark index reached a record high last month and is tied with Taiwan as the region's second best performer in 2019. Record low interest rates have helped prop up the benchmark index and overshadowed troubling economic signals for corporate Australia. The nation's economy slowed last quarter as cuts to mortgage rates and taxes failed to spur household spending, which grew at its slowest pace in a decade. And the cheque may soon no longer be in the mail. With the Reserve Bank signalling the payment system may have to end. Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe on Tuesday said the days of the cheque were numbered, while revealing Australians were also giving up on our cash as they moved to tap and go and other electronic forms of payment. Addressing the Australian Payments Network Summit in Sydney, Dr Lowe revealed the bank's traditional survey of payment systems has found another huge fall in the use of cheques. Over the past year, the number of cheques written has fallen by 19%, with the value down by 30%. Much of this is due to the real estate sector moving to electronic property settlements. There are now around four cheques written per person every year, with most of those in the commercial sector. At the turn of the century, it was closer to 40 cheques per person. Dr Lowe said cheques were simply not being used by the vast majority of people or businesses. At some point, it will be appropriate to wind up the cheque system, and that point is getting closer, he said. And business confidence has dipped amid flat conditions in November, according to a survey of Australian firms. National Australian Bank's index of business conditions compiled from a monthly survey of more than 500 companies was unchanged at four points, while its index of confidence fell two points to zero. An ANZ Roy Morgan Australian Consumer Confidence rose 0.8%, continuing the upward momentum of the previous week. The gain was led by a lifted sentiment surrounding economic conditions, both for the next year and the long term. Current finances gained 1%, while future financial conditions fell 3.9%, and in contrast, to current finances are below average. And the income squeeze hitting the bottom line of Australian families is continuing into its fifth year, as people get less overtime while being more offered more flexible hours or the chance to work from home. Figures compiled by the Australian Bureau of Statistics show male median weekly earnings over the past year climbed 1.3%, well short of the 1.7% inflation rate over the same period. Median weekly earnings for all men edged up to $1,275 in the year to August, up from $1,259. Over the past five years, male median weekly earnings have averaged an increase of 1.6% per annum. Through the same period, the inflation rate has also averaged 1.6%. It's been a better story for women with their median weekly earnings improving by a solid 4.3% over the past year. Since 2014, average weekly earnings for women have climbed by 2.9%. Despite the increase, they're still $325 a week short of the median enjoyed by men, with some of the difference due to higher rates of part-time employment. And former High Court judge and Royal Commissioner Kenneth Hayne has warned directors they have a legal duty to act on climate change risk, include it in corporate strategies, and report on it to shareholders, raising the real prospects that boards failing to act could end up in court. Justice Kenneth Hayne says a sense of helplessness and short-termism is no excuse for inaction on climate risk. In a private address to business leaders, regulators and government officials hosted by think tank the Centre for Policy Development, Mr Hayne also took a swipe at the Morrison government, which has come under criticism for its unambitious emissions reduction policies. He said both learned helplessness and short-termism yielded a result that fits comfortably with those who still see climate change as a matter of belief or ideology. Framing the most recent debates provoked by bushfire emergencies as part of the culture wars reinforces the notion that climate science is a matter of belief, not scientific observation and extrapolation, he said. No less importantly, because the debate remains framed as a debate about belief, learned helplessness and short-termism can be translated into the nativist populist terms that now have such currency in many political systems. Mr Haynes said international expert consensus was now clear the climate change risk was a matter of fact and boards could not hide behind excuses for inaction. And Ostrak is hopeful its court proceedings against Westpac will be wrapped up by February after the bank revealed it would not contest the bulk of the 23 million breaches of anti-money laundering laws alleged by the Financial Intelligence Agency. The explosive case against Australia's oldest bank was heard in the federal court for the first time on Monday as Chief Justice James Allsop sought an update on the -the behind-the-scenes negotiations underway between Westpac and the regulator. OSTRAC's barrister, Simon White QC, told the court the agency was confident that a long, protracted litigation with Westpac was unlikely. And people with less than $10,000 in their superannuation accounts are losing as much as 4.4% of their already modest savings to fees charged by fund administrators, new data from Prudential regulator shows. A heat map published by the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority on Tuesday, also reveals Westpac-BT is consistently delivering substandard returns to members of MySuperFunds. It paints a picture of retirement incomes for some savers in MySuperFunds, which are supposed to be simple and low cost, being eaten away by high fees and poor returns. APRA member Helen Rao said the regulator would help use the data to put pressure on trustees to either dramatically improve their performance or get out of the industry by closing or merging funds. And the A2 Milk Company's chief executive, Jane heard has resigned suddenly amid simmering tensions with the board over the execution of the company's strategy and to give her full attention to a family issue. In a surprise move, A2 Milk announced early on Monday that Ms heard would be departing after just 18 months in the role with long-standing former chief executive Jeff Babbage to take the role on an interim basis. Shares in the infant formula group dropped almost 6% in early trading, and by the close, the stock was down 3.9% at $13.97. A2 Milk chairman David Hearn said there were no changes to profit forecasts made at last month's annual general meeting, and a global search was underway for a permanent chief executive. Mr Hearn said Ms Heidlicka was a change agent, who had been aggressively pursuing the execution of the strategy of investing more to build an on-the-ground business in China, which the board was still right behind, even though there would now be more focus on preserving profit margins and less on chasing market share. Investors, since there was something more to the departure than the public statement of the Stock Exchange early on Monday morning, in the statement, Muse Heard Liquor said the reality had hit home that over the next three to five years, the chief executive would need to be ever present in the company's main markets of China and the United States. And power prices are forecast to fall in most Australian states and territories over the next three years, with energy users in Queensland set to see the biggest benefit. Official forecasts published by the Australian Energy Market Commission show the continued price falls are primarily driven by increasing supplies of renewable energy generation in the electricity market. The advisory body predicts further investment in batteries, wind and solar as an optimal mix of generation investment to meet power system needs at the lowest cost to consumers. No new investment in gas or coal generation is forecast beyond projects already committed. And Sydney's dramatic air pollution crisis, stemming from the persistent bushfires burning in the city's surrounds, is threatening to choke the tourism industry. The harbor city's image as a tourism magnet and a haven for fresh air and ocean breezes is in peril as long as a toxic haze shrouds the city, industry experts say. Already, tourist drawcards relying on outdoor activities are seeing dwindling numbers, and and commuters, in recent weeks, the air quality has ranked among the world's worst. And with Sydney's air quality hitting 11 times the hazardous level on Tuesday and the Department of Planning, Industry and Environment recording an air quality index in parts of the city above 1,400, more than 12 times the 200 level considered hazardous by people's health, New South Wales unions urge workers to consider going home. Air quality in parts of New South Wales has deteriorated and work outside is no longer safe without protection, the peak body tweeted. We're advising all non-essential workers to work indoors or from home. The smoke hazard is 10 times the healthy limit, Union's New South Wales Assistant Secretary Thomas Costa told Business Insider Australia. We consider it illegal to be forced to work in these conditions and will stick up for any worker who wants to down tools. Only emergency and essential service employees should be working outdoors today. And with Australia dealing with its worst drought on record, sentiment in the nation's agricultural sector is at a 15-month low, as Australia's farmers brace for a hot, Dry summer, with drought conditions intensifying across large swathes of the country, the latest quarterly Rabobank Rural Confidence Survey has found. The dry spring on record, along with bushfires which heralded an early start to summer, saw the latest survey report the sixth lowest reading in its 18-year history, with two in five farmers expecting conditions in the agricultural economy to deteriorate even further in the coming year. Confidence this survey was down across all commodity sectors and states except Queensland where it remains subdued. The final survey for twenty nineteen found of the one thousand farmers questioned, forty one percent expect agricultural economic conditions to worsen in the next twelve months, up from thirty percent in the September quarter, while thirty one per cent expect them to say the same. Only seventeen percent had a positive outlook on the year ahead, compared with twenty five percent in the previous survey. And the national sheep flock is expected to collapse to its smallest size since 1904, amid warnings that droughts impact on the economy and the agricultural sector will linger for up to a decade. Analysis by the rural forecaster suggests the farm sector is facing its toughest period since the 1950s, when drought and the end of the Korean war war, wool boom hit producers across most of the nation. The Australian Bureau of Agricultural and Resource Economics and Sciences, or ABEARS, on Tuesday said it now expected farm production to fall another 3% through 2019-20. It would be the third successive annual decline, the first time that it occurred in 63 years. The brunt of the drop is being borne by crop producers. Wheat production is now expected to be 8.4% down on last year's drought-affected harvest, to be the third smallest century. Wheat exports are tipped to reach $3.3 billion, a $500 million downgrade on Abares' September forecasts. But the livestock sector is facing the toughest recovery once a drought breaks. Abares is forecasting the national flock to fall to $64.9 million as farmers, without access to water and feed, reduce their sheep numbers. It would take the flock to its smallest size since 1904. The flock peaked at almost $180 million in 1970, but has averaged about 70 million over recent years. And petrol and diesel supply Viva Energy has flagged a drop in profit of between 28 and 41 percent this year, as improved fuel sales volumes and a strong operation at its Geelong refinery failed to offset the impact of lower retail fuel margins. Underlying net profit after tax is expected to fall to between 135 million and 165 million in 2019, from 229 million last year. Viva said on Monday, citing figures that have been restated after adopting new accounting standards. Earnings from the refining business are expected to be largely flat at 120 million to 130 million dollars, compared with 125 million dollars last year. But earnings in retail, fuels and marketing would fall to between 840 million and 855 million, down from 938 million in 2018. The weaker outlook comes as the country's only other listed fuel supplier, Caltex Australia, is fielding an $8.6 billion takeover approach from Canadian convenience retailing giant Alimentation Couche-Tard. Viva, which owns the former Shell Australia refining and petrol station network, said it had delivered strong top-line sales growth of petrol and diesel, with sales volumes up about 4.3% on last year, helped by the restructuring of its retail lines with coals in February. The Geelong plant saw periods of record production, it noted. And Prime Media Group has said it's consulting with Seven West Media about their proposed merger after Bruce Gordon and Anthony Catalano said they would block the deal. Prime said if Mr Gordon, who holds 11.59% of the shares, and Mr Catalano, who holds a 14.57% stake, voted against the scheme of arrangement, then the scheme would not be approved. And that's it for this week. And that brings an end to Talking Business for 2019. It's been a privilege presenting all the week's business, finance and economics news in about 30 minutes with insights from business people and economists. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBuzzZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. You can also check this year's Talking Business episodes on the ACAST ACA archives or on the app. Have a great week, take care, be good and looking forward to bringing Talking Business starting on February the 7th, 2020. Wishing you all a happy and safe Christmas and Happy New Year.